is Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at, the, at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stand near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Kathy. Um, <clears throat> you can see that the uh, stand here is way higher than normal, way higher than Kathy or I need. That's because we have a guest uh, preacher with us uh, this morning. You heard Kathy mention that I was gone this week uh, in BC uh, doing some leadership development. We, uh, we all hope and pray that uh, you will see the fruit of that development in the coming months and years. Uh, so we have actually uh, Kevin DeYoung, who is um, an intern at New City Church, our sister church in downtown Hamilton, who's going to be uh, preaching with us this morning. He's here with his wife, Michelle. Um, you can make sure you say hi to them after the service, make them feel welcome. Kevin has preached for us a couple times, I think, now, right? So uh, he's becoming more and more familiar with us. Uh, so Kevin, please come up and... Uh, <clears throat> Kevin's a young preacher, so he might be a little more nervous than he needs to be. Yeah, no, maybe, maybe. He doesn't need to be nervous, just the right amount. Well, we're going to pray for him anyway. Let's pray. Father, thanks uh, for bringing Kevin here this morning. Thank you for him and Michelle, for the ministry that they're doing at New City, for all the things he's learning as a pastoral intern there. And as he preaches now uh, for us this morning, may he do so with boldness, with clarity, with conviction. May we see Jesus in all his beauty through uh, the word. In your son's name we pray, amen. Good morning. Thanks for having me here again. Yeah, I'm not sure how many, I think I've been here two or three times, so. We're living in the age of uh, the public apology, the age of the public apology. So we've seen this in, uh, we've got an election coming up. So of course, uh, when an election comes up, 
the op opposing parties like to throw dirt at the other side. And then sometimes it sticks and sometimes it, it, it might have some validity. And so um, one of the leaders has to apologize. Um, we've also seen it in the, in the past couple of years due to the, the, the Me Too movement. So we've seen because of the, me the sexual scandal and the abuse in our culture, we've seen so many people have to come forward and apologize for their past mistakes. And, and I think we can all agree that, that this, this is a good thing. This is not a bad thing, right? That people are apologizing, that they're admitting their faults um, and that they're recognizing that they need to say sorry. But what's interesting about these apologies is that there's actually a lot of time and effort spent on crafting the exact words that these people are going to say in front of the public. And that's because these people who are apologizing, yes, they want to make things right, but on the other hand, they believe that by apologizing or by repenting or, or, or confessing what they've done, that they're going to drive a wedge between them and the people who like them, them and the people who are following them. And so their desire is always to maintain the following that they have while yet recognizing that, yes, I've done this thing. And this does happen to us as well, doesn't it? Why are we so scared sometimes to admit our faults and weaknesses to the people that we love? And I think it's a, this same reason. It's because we believe that it's going to drive a wedge between us and the people closest to us or the people that we love or the people that we feel we need to save face, right? We need to show that, you know, I, I'm okay, I belong here. We're afraid that showing the real us is going to drive us away from the people we love. And in Psalm 32, the author, King David, he's saying just the opposite thing. He says that joy is found in confessing our sin. It's found in experiencing the forgiveness of God. And this forgiveness is only offered to those who actually repent, who actually apologize for who they are, for what they've done, who clearly own up to what they've done. So Psalm 32 teaches us that God grants joy and forgiveness to those who repent and draw near to him. God grants joy and forgiveness to those who repent and draw near to him. And so we're going to look at this passage under three major points, or almost two, maybe two. So God forgives, God is near, and then God is steadfast. God forgives, God is near, and God is steadfast. So the first four verses of this psalm, we see that David, who's the author, that he's setting up this contrast based on his own life experience. And he's contrasting between someone who, who has been forgiven, who has repented of their sin, and then on the other side, it's, it's someone who hasn't repented, who is unrepentant, who's feeling the weight of their sin. And this is all from his own life experience. So first he says that the person who has been forgiven is blessed, that the Lord counts no iniquity against them. So despite this person's sin and rebellion, despite their wrongdoing, they have been forgiven and they are blessed and they have 
They can have great joy in the forgiveness that God offers to them. But then to contrast this joy, David recalls a time when he was unrepentant. So this is personal for him. He says that his bones wasted away. He, he felt a heavy weight, and his strength was dried up like the heat of the summer. I know it, it, summer feels like a long time ago already. It's been like two weeks since our last hot day. But we, I feel like we can still kind of look back on that and remember what it feels like to have our strength sapped, you know, when we're working in the garden that one time this summer, and we, we get, you know, you know, we, we just can't handle it because we're used to, like, living, working in an office or something like that. So y- your strength has been sapped. And this is what he's saying, what it feels like to be unrepentant, to be living in sin. Living in sin wastes us away, he says. And the Bible tells us a little bit more about what sin is. The Bible tells us that sin is more than just an action, It's more than just something that we do. Sin runs deeper. Yes, it is when we disobey the law of God, but sin runs deeper than that for us. Sin for us is a condition. Sin ultimately at its core is a broken relationship with God. And this broken relationship, it affects everything. It affects everything our relationship with those around us. It affects our relationship with our environment. And it especially hurts those who we love most. I think some of us might understand that, yeah, yeah, I, I am a sinner. I recognize that I have this condition. But I think on the other hand, there's probably those of us in the room who are saying, I don't, nah, not me. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good, like I, you know, yeah, I make, I make some mistakes, but I'm not a sinner. You're not, you're not explaining who I am. And I think the best way that we can understand that we all are sinners, one of the best ways we're, to understand that we're all sinners who need help, is to look at the way that we relate to those who we love most. For me, this would be my wife, Michelle. I love her the most out of all people. Sorry. <laughs> if, you, if, if you thought you could get in there. <laughs> but for you, this could be another family member. Like this could be your own spouse or, uh, a, or a different family member or one of your really good friends. And so if we think about it like this, we love these people who are closest to us, and maybe we can have somebody in mind. So think of somebody who, who you love most. And so I love my wife, and my desire is to see her flourish. I, I have no reason to hurt her. Why would I? I love her the most. Right? And so these people that we love the most, we have no desire, nor do we have any intention to hurt them. But then why do we go and then hurt them? Why do we go and then say things that are selfish? Things that serve only us and not them. Why do we get in arguments? Why does that relationship seem to crack and break more often than we think it needs to? 
I, I love her. How, how come I can't keep that love going all the time? It's because sin is not just wrong actions. It's not just something that we sometimes do. This is a condition that we all have. We are sinners. So now that brings to us a bigger problem. Now we have a problem. What do we do with this fact that we are sinners? And if we're, sim- if we're simply about changing our actions, about changing what we do and when we do things, then I think we could do that. But there's lots of religion out there that says, do this, do that, do this, and you will be holy. You'll be made a better person. If only we could just change our behavior, that might fix the problem. But sin runs deeper. It's a condition. It's very likely that when David wrote this psalm, he's reflecting back on a major instance that happened in his life. In 2 Samuel 11, we read that King David himself, he committed adultery with a woman named Bathsheba. And if this adultery, this sin wasn't enough, things spiraled out of, in, out of control. In his sin and unrepentance, he ended up killing Bathsheba's husband to cover up what he had done, the other, the other sin that he had done. And he tried to keep his sin hidden from others and from God. And I think we can kind of picture him feeling the weight of his unrepentance as he just spirals more and more into sin. And eventually David was confronted by God, and and he did repent. And in his psalm of repentance, which is a different psalm, Psalm 51, David points out that at the core of his sin is that he had sinned ultimately against God. He says, against you, you only have I sinned. Sin at its core is a broken relationship with God, and it affects and it breaks our relationship with others and the environment around us. And so when we are living in sin, we are wasting away. Then in verse 5 of Psalm 32, the psalm we're talking about today, David gives us insight into how he moved from this state of active sin, this, this weight on his shoulders, into the forgiveness of God. Verse 5 says, I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. You forgave the iniquity of my sin. See, David is explaining repentance. He says, I I acknowledged my sin. I did not cover my iniquity. I confessed my transgressions to the Lord. At the, at the core of repentance is this idea of turning. It's more than simply feeling remorse or, or sorry for what you've done. But it's saying, no, I turn from this way of life and I turn towards Christ. It's acknowledging past wrongdoing. It's expressing regret. But it always involves a recommitment to Christ, to doing what is right. 
And he ends verse 5 by saying that God forgave his sin. You forgave the iniquity of my sin. And so David shows that he moves from someone who's been wasting away because of his sin to someone who's been forgiven. And he already talked about in the, in the first two verses that the blessedness of what this looks like to be someone who's forgiven. And so for us, the takeaway is that living a life of repentance does lead to joy. And he's sharing his experience with sin and repentance. And he's contrasting. He shows us that those, those who have been forgiven by God, that they have been fully repentant and they are blessed. They're happy. They're given joy. I think we still don't really know what that joy, how we get there. And I, I think the best way, we really can't understand this joy unless, unless we've understand the, understood the price that was paid for this joy, for this forgiveness. At the heart of Christianity is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the, is the Son of God. But in order to pay for that sin and that rebellion, that condition that we have, God sent his Son to our world to become human like me and like you. And Jesus lived a life that we couldn't live. He's the, he's the only human to ever walk the earth with no sin. He didn't have our condition. And yet, despite the righteousness that he earned, that he had, he was tortured and murdered for wrongdoing that he did not do. He was hung on a cross. And he did this in order to pay for you, to pay for your sin. Yes, the price for our sin is death. It is hell. But at the cross, Jesus Christ gives his righteousness to everyone who would believe in him. And so we're moved from death to life. This is where we get our joy and forgiveness from. And death couldn't hold him down. He rose victorious, proving that he is the first fruit of the resurrection that we will have. We will have life as he had. And so the joy that we can have is in being united with Christ at the cross. This is a life and death matter. In Christ, we are forgiven, and we are given a new life. And as we lean on him, we do get to experience this joy of forgiveness. And as we look at the price he paid, there's nothing but we can do but go on our knees and worship him. In the next four verses of the psalm, David shows us that God is near us. God is near that a life of repentance, repentance draws us near to God. And David, he gets personal again. He describes the relationship that he now has with God. And he instructs us to go to God regularly in a posture of repentance and faith. 
Look at verses 6 and 7 with me. Here David, he prays that all those who are godly would be led by God to seek forgiveness. He's instructing the reader to offer their prayer of repentance to God, and he's showing us the way to draw near to God. And then in verse 7, David tells us what he experienced when he called out to God and acknowledged his sin and repentance. He says that God is now a hiding place for him. It's a safe place. God preserves him and surrounds him with shouts of deliverance. In other words, he's, he is drawn near to God. He can rest in him. And he is now constantly reminded of his deliverance, of this forgiveness that he has, because God has surrounded him with, with shouts of deliverance. And David continues to instruct us in the way of repentance in verses 8 and 9. He says that we should not be like a horse or a mule without understanding who need to be coaxed with bit and bridle. So he's shown us the way to blessing through the repentance, and now he's kind of instructing us to go that way. Don't be like me. I've lived that life. Go this way. It's like a teacher. And so then he gives us this illustration of a horse and a mule. He says, don't be like a horse or a mule, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near to you. So I'm really scared of animals, like anything, that a mouse to an elephant. Any animal, I'm just not a fan. Um, I'll never have a pet. It's just not my thing. Um, so I had to do some research on some horses because I don't know anything about horses. I have no desire to ride them um, or really be near them. I'm good. So, uh, but after some research, I found out um, that a bit and a bridle is like, like a harness that you place on the horse's head. And I think that the bit goes in the horse's mouth. And it helps the rider control the horse where they want to go. So they kind of, I don't know, they pull or they, they, I guess they pull on one, one side or the other and the horse goes one way or the other. The rider has to put pressure on the horse's mouth to figure out where they're going to go. And so David is instructing us, don't be like that. Don't be a horse. And I think he's pointing to his own life. He, he's showing that he was the one who, who was like the horse, being tugged and dragged back into repentance, back into a life with God. How about you? Are there things in your life that God is calling you to willfully give up? To turn from? To admit your wrongdoing to God and others and commit to a life of joy in forgiveness. David is, is saying here in this psalm, don't get dragged to this point. He's showing us that owning our sin and confessing it to God is the wise way to go. This, is, this rhythm of life will draw us nearest to him. Tim Keller, who's a retired pastor in New York, he makes this distinction between 
between religious repentance and gospel repentance. Distinguishing, distinguishing this idea of religion as, as the things that we do to make us right with God, as if we can earn our righteousness with God. And gospel repentance, kind of looking at the things that Jesus has done to earn our joy, to earn our righteousness with Christ. And he says that in religion, our only hope, our only hope in religion is to live a good enough life. And so in religion, repentance is kind of used, it's a, it's a last-ditch effort. It's like as if all else fails, if, I'm, if I try my very best and I'm still not good enough, now I guess I'll admit that I'm, I'm bad and maybe, maybe then I can kind of squeak in. I'm being dragged, kicking and screaming into the kingdom of God. And Keller's contrast is a religious repentance to a, to a religious repentance is a gospel repentance. And this is similar to what David is teaching us. David has taught us. Instead of our repentance being kind of, kind of bitter all the way down, Keller says, he says the real purpose of repentance is to repeatedly go to the well, to repeatedly tap into the joy of our union with Christ in order to weaken our need for anything contrary to God. Continually go to the well so that our need for anything else will be weakened. In other words, when we live a life of openness towards God and, to, and towards others, when we acknowledge our sin regularly and we're turning from it and we, are, and we are embracing the joy of forgiveness, we are growing closer to God. Because, not because we are awesome at doing that, but because we are tapping into the union that we have with Christ at the cross. how do we live this life? How do we live this life relying on Christ this way? We're drawn near to God through our union with Christ. The Apostle Paul in the, in the New Testament, in his letter to the Ephesians, he helps us understand this. He says in Ephesians 2, he tells the Ephesians to remember that they were once separated from Christ, but now they are in Christ. And they have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Christ has paid for their sins, making them right with God. And he goes on to say that those of us who are united with Christ in his death and resurrection by faith are more than simply made right with God. We're actually brought near to God. We're not just made right with God now. We're drawn near as children. We become children of God. We earn what Christ deserves. Paul later says in Ephesians 2, 19, he says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And it gets better. He says that we are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. In other words, God now dwells in our hearts 
by his spirit. And so when we are living lives of repentance and, and turning to Christ in faith, we are both empowered by that gospel and we're embodied by the spirit of Christ. And so in living a life of repentance, we continually give the reins in our life back to God who lives and works in our hearts. I think no matter where you are in your journey of faith, the invitation is the same. Would you give the reins of your heart back to God in repentance and faith? And if this is something new for you, if you've never heard about repentance or about faith, or if you want to know more, I know that there are people here that would be happy to talk to you at length about what this looks like, and they would love, they'd be honored to guide you through this. If you want to know more about what it looks like to live this life, to go this way, you've never seen or heard something like this before, then don't be afraid to talk to Paul or to Mark, or maybe a friend brought you here today. They would love to talk to you, I'm sure. And at this point, we, we might be thinking, wow, this all sounds so good. I can, I can have joy in Christ. I can have joy in the union that I have with Christ. The freedom that we can experience by going to God for forgiveness like all of this is, is really, really great. It leads us to joy. But you're also thinking, well, what about the times when, I'm, when I don't feel it? What about the times when I don't experience this joy? When it feels like maybe God isn't near to me? When I'm, when I'm stuck in a place of pain or, or a season of discomfort and suffering? Where is this good news for me now in this time, in, the, in this storm? David ends the psalm with this encouragement in verse 10. He says that many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. The promise here is that God's steadfast love surrounds those who trust in him. And what better thing do we have to hold on to in the storms of life than the steadfast love of God that is displayed to us in the sacrifice of Christ for our sin and our brokenness? When we are in times of, of deep pain and despair, what else will guide us through? And this is David's encouragement to us from his own experience. A and if you know anything about the life of David, he's been to some dark, dark places. He says that the steadfast love of God is the thing that we can hold on to in the storm. God's love is steady. David had experienced the grace of God, and, and he was looking forward 
to the day when God would send a Messiah to deal with this sin, with his sin and brokenness. And now we live on the other side of that story. Jesus has come, and he has dealt with ours and David's sin. And he's still dealing with us. His promise is that he will come again to finish the work that he has begun and to make all things new. And we have this firm hope. It's rooted in his death and his resurrection. He is the first fruits of making all things new. No more brokenness. No more pain. This is the sure promise of God. And so what else can we hold on to in the storms of life than this? David is, encourages us to hold tightly to the grace of God despite the storm. We're to hold tightly to the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ for our sin. He made us righteous. And he took on the consequences of our brokenness. One of the things that I've been struggling lately with is anxiety, my anxiety. And anxiety looks a, looks a little different um, for everyone. But for me, it's kind of rooted in this feeling that I'm not enough. I don't measure up. And sometimes for me, this, this is debilitating. These feelings, they, they well up inside of me, and then, and then my body, I just shut down. And it's in, it's in times like these for us, whether we're dealing with our anxiety, depression, issues in our family, other things that are going on, it's in times like these when, when we reflect or even when we just reflect on these times, right? We might, we might be in a, in a season of, of flourishing, a great season in our life. But it's when we reflect on these where we can hold fast to the steadiness of our God. The reality is that, that we don't measure up. I don't measure up. I'm, I'm really actually not enough. But in an, an incredible act of grace, God came to me. He came to you in your sin. And he loves you so much that he sent his son to take your place. And now in Christ, I measure up. We measure up. We can be called children of God. We have a place and through the forgiveness that God offers us, we can have a relationship with him and we can begin to see the things, the relationships, the brokenness in our life be mended as we turn to him in faith and repentance, living this life of faith and repentance. So in times of suffering, suffering even deeper than our anxieties, we can look to Christ on the cross for joy. Some of, the, some of you may know about, um, know about this guy, St. Augustine. Augustine was a very influential bishop in the church, in the early church. And from his life, we actually have a wonderful picture of this kind of 
all of life turning to God constantly for repentance in faith. He had the, the Psalm 32, the words of Psalm 32, written on the wall beside his deathbed. This way he could be reminded of the joy that he has in the forgiveness of God for him. And so even in a, in a time of great pain and suffering for him, he was reminded of, the, of his joy in Christ. Augustine grew up in Rome, and, and in his college years, he lived it up. He lived it up. And his parents, particularly his mother, was, were, was always very concerned for him. And she, it is said that she prayed for him constantly, even from when he was a young boy. And so his life gives us an incredible glimpse into this journey of repentance. In his autobiography called The, called the Confessions, he kind of shares this prayer of repentance that he had in his early years as a Christian. And he says it's, it's, it was a half-hearted prayer. It goes like this. Lord, make me chaste, but not yet. Lord, make me chaste, but not yet. It's like saying, Lord, take away my lustful desires, my desire for sensuality, for sex but not right away, because I still want to be, be involved with that. This is an example of half-hearted repentance. But we see from his life, as God continued to work in his heart, he grew in his faith and repentance. He found joy in a life of repentance, to the point where Psalm 32 was slapped on the wall of his deathbed. His prayer changed from a half-hearted prayer to a prayer of thankfulness and joy, understanding the forgiveness that God has brought on his life. He wanted to look back and praise God for the joy that he found in repentance. You see, our repentance, it does not drive a wedge between us and those we love. Like some people fear. No, it draws us closer. By putting our whole faith in Christ for salvation, we are drawn close to God, closer than we could ever imagine. We're, we're not just acquaintances. We're not just, just people who kind of slipped in because we were pretty good. We're children. We're saved by grace and we're brought into the fold by grace, by the grace of God. This weekend, it's Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. I think as we um, maybe gather with family and friends, uh, hopefully tomorrow or today, I think we can kind of take this final challenge. So as we, as we celebrate Thanksgiving this weekend, I think, and beyond, we're being called to reflect, as Augustine did, reflect on the grace of God in our lives. For some of us, that might just be a very new concept. 
And I think we're also called by God here to recommit, to recommit our lives to him in willful repentance. And, and Thanksgiving gives us a good time to kind of, we're, we're reflecting usually, right? We're reflecting on what God has given us and, the, and what we can be thankful for. And we're also given a great opportunity this weekend to talk about it with our friends and our family. Talk about it and to praise God for the grace that he has given in our life. So why don't we do that? Let's praise God, this good father, for his grace in our life. Let's pray. Father, it's, it's only fitting on Thanksgiving to thank you, the author of all life, and the author of, and perfecter of our faith. God, we praise you for Scripture. We praise you for this psalm which shows us and instructs us to go the way of the wise, to be open and honest with you about who we are, and to reach out to you in the storms of life for forgiveness and for the joy that we can have in Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that as we spend this weekend reflecting on the, on the things that have been given to us, the, 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 the blessings and the great things in our life, Lord, we pray that we would recognize and understand and, and feel and be transformed by the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that, that you sent your son to be sin, who knew no sin, so that we might be given the righteousness of God. Lord, it's only in his name that we can approach you and pray these things. In Jesus' name, amen.